You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Well, happy Easter, y'all. It's so good to be together for uh, Resurrection Sunday. And, you know, this is the greatest, the greatest event that has ever happened thus far. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, where uh, his disciples and others experienced just the reality that he truly was the Christ. He really was the Messiah. He really is because he really is alive. And uh, he had paid the debt. Uh, the, the, the sin penalty for our sin, and God raised him from the dead and basically said that the check is cleared. It's all been paid. For 2,000 years, for 2,000 plus years, this has been celebrated, and this news has spread across the entire world. And even today, around the whole globe, more and more people are hearing this news. And I, I, I trust that even today, Many are hearing for the first time. And so actually before we start, I just want to pray and ask God to meet us and not just to be with us, but to be with others. Because many are preaching the same news and encouraging hearts with this same story around the whole world. So would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, I stand here before you grateful, Lord. Grateful for the good news of Jesus Christ. Not just his life and, and God as thankful as we are for his death and his sacrifice. Lord, today we stand here and we are so, so thankful for his new life, God. His resurrected life, his eternal life that is also shared with us by faith. God, you raised him from the dead and you put death to death. What was left in the grave was all of those things that had enslaved us and caused us to be separated from you. And now, God, we have a new life in him because of that reality. Lord Jesus, we praise you today. We worship you. We bow down before you. And spirit, we pray that in the word, you would encourage us and teach us and lead us. This day, as we just seek to live lives that tell that story, a story that there's new life, that there is newness, and that the resurrection is powerful to change. God, we thank you so much that you are transforming us by the gospel. And so we ask that you would do that yet again, even here today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we left off in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11. And this is one of the clearest passages that talks about uh, our new life in Christ. Not just verse 11, but all of the beginning of chapter 3, even unto where we are. 
We kind of said that last week's sermon was a hinge point that connected the beginning with the section that we'll be in today and that has already been read for us. But here's the deal. What we need to realize is that God has shown us crystal clear what his vision is for us and how he pictures us as his church to be one body and to be unified around one mission, one common goal of bringing him glory in Jesus Christ so that the world around us would come to know him. And Jesus, in his own ministry, had taught that this would happen. The world would come to know him, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group would come to know him because his followers love one another, because of the love that we have for one another. There's a man, his name is John Perkins, John Perkins is a a leader who, uh, actually a a church leader who uh, emerged out of the civil rights movement and still lives today. And he's one of the leading Christian voices, I think, on what reconciliation and what love are and has just really been an encouragement to me. From him, I've learned so much about love. And this week, uh, we participated in this campaign, Jesus Changed My Life. Hashtag Jesus Changed My Life. Maybe you saw some videos. Maybe you saw some of the videos at Arises page. Maybe you saw videos with others, other churches in Ventura, other churches in Los Angeles, and all across the world, we hope that there were thousands of Christians who were just sharing their story and saying, Jesus changed my life. Well, John Perkins is a person who, by sharing his story and talking about his his transformation, I just have been absolutely changed and I keep being changed even by hearing that. And I heard more of it this last week. And so as we look at our text of scripture today, I hope to introduce you just a little bit to him. This is about Jesus, but I want you to just kind of know how uh, there have been other people who have encouraged me and helped me to understand more about who Jesus is. And so I'm going to introduce you just a little bit to John Perkins. But more than that, I hope to help us understand this fact, that the gospel And more specifically, the resurrection is a love story of all love stories, and it changes everything and can change any and every one. Let's read that text of scripture yet again. I'm in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 down to 14 is where we'll be. And if you have a scripture journal as a part of our Arise fam, we just uh, would have you to pull that out and take some notes along with us in our sermon. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul has just told the Colossians that they have a new perspective. They have a new perspective. That was at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised or because you have been raised with Jesus Christ, seek the things that are above and look to Christ who's on the throne and he's at the right hand of God. Don't look down on the earthly things and on the past. I want you to look beyond that. In fact, not just out there, but up there. You have a new perspective. Your perspective isn't down here 
It's a perspective that causes you to look at the new life or new, uh, a new category that God has called you into. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then he went on and he said, you have a new relationship, right? You have a new relationship, a new relationship to sin, new relationship to God, new relationship to one another. And so he gave us some understandings about that. And we discussed these things over a period of a couple weeks just as way of cross-referencing as we've been thinking about some of the things that have been going on here. How would God have us to respond to the suffering of our day? But it was those verses from five down to eight, really. And basically what he says is you have a new relationship to sin, God, and to one another. So put away your old ways. Put away the things that are characterized by death because you're alive in Jesus Christ. You're alive again. You've died and your life is hidden with him above. And then last week we saw that because Jesus has raised from the dead and not only uh, did he raise from the dead with himself, but because we are with him, then we have a new identity, which really creates a new humanity and calls us to strive for a new unity. He says your ethnic distinctions and your cultural distinctions and all your economic statuses, none of those things, none of those things hold any bearing in the church. And so, therefore, you should not allow them to play barrier between you and one another. He said the love of Jesus Christ doesn't allow division and it doesn't create uh, places where distinction gives room for upmanship. No, you're one and you're together. So you have a, what do you say, new perspective and you've got new relationships, new humanity, new humanity, seek for a new unity. And now he tells them that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have a new life in him. The first thing we found as we read Colossians 3 verses 12 and following, is that he issues a command. The command is to put on then. He says, put on then. By saying put on then, he's calling them to action. He's just said, you, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ. And there are these old ways that you need to put off and you need to put away and you need to no longer find yourself uh, giving way to. And when, when he talks about putting off, what he basically is saying is, I want you to repent. I want you to turn away from your past ways. I want you to leave the old behind, and I want you to receive the new, enjoy the new, and bend that out towards one another. I don't want you to still be the kinds of people who are angry with one another and malicious towards one another and divided over against each other and cause uh, one or the other to feel, quote, unquote, less than. No, I want you to put those things off. And so now he turns around and he says, put on then. He's telling them that I want you to get dressed. I want you to ready yourself for the occasion. I want you to put on new qualities since you are putting off old qualities. And it was following the command, but before he tells them, uh, you know, what the, 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 the what are, it was following the command that he actually called them by a couple of names. Before them, he tells them what? He provides them with the basis. He tells them why. He, he has a new expectation for them. And when he addresses the Colossians, he addresses them with these three wonderful and really sweet and endearing titles. He says, chosen, holy, and beloved. 
Verse 12, again, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This word chosen, really, you could derive it and pull it out of the Old Testament. The people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 7 heard God's word to them. He said, it was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually fewest of the peoples. He says, God cherry-picked you. And he didn't hand-select you because you were uh, the best. That's what we did on the basketball court. We sized people up and said, hey, I'm going to take him. I want him on my team. I don't want him or her. No, Jesus says it's not because you were so strong or because you were uh, uh, one of the greatest. You were actually, or God says it's not because you were strong or one of the greatest. It's because he chose you. God cherry-picked you. And it wasn't because you were so good. It's because he's so good. And then he goes on and he says, holy, right? He calls them holy. Remember, he's talking to the Colossians who have otherwise been a despised, small, insignificant group over against the churches that are nearby them where thousands gather. And so he's encouraging them. And here he did, here it is again. He calls them holy. Sometimes we don't understand what holy means. It simply means to be set apart. It means that you have significance. You have a special purpose that God has brought you out of something and made you into someone. Literally, he, he has brought you into a place where not just are you hand-selected, but you have been handcrafted. There's, there's language in the Bible about us being his workmanship. There, there are certain aspects of the fact that God literally has pulled us into his family in order to make us more like him and for us to have a special purpose. And he doesn't stop there. He calls them beloved. It's interesting that beloved, you know, with this title, you basically hear you've got these privileges and you've got these rights that others don't have. You put all those together, chosen and uh, holy and beloved. You got special privileges and special purpose. And, 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 and you are now part of God's royal family. This is essentially what he's saying to them. And it's only after this that he tells them what to put on. So a command comes and he tells them, I want you to put something on, command. But then he says, hey, don't forget who you are and whose you are. I tell my kids that all the time, right? When you leave home, I want you to know who you are and whose you are. And he turns around and he says the same thing to them. And then now he tells them what it is to put on. They know their why and so now they can see their what. And what we're going to look at briefly here, I would characterize it and I would summarize it and just say, this is Jesus Christ's wardrobe. It's like Paul just opened up Jesus' closet and he invited us to go and pick out the choicest garments and to lay them out one by one. He puts them before us, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Let's look at each one of these for a brief moment. The first one he says is compassionate hearts. He says, I want you to have those kinds of hearts and thoughts and not just feelings, but actions towards one another. Since you are a new uh, humanity and you've got this new identity now to live a new life, I want you to be compassionate towards one another. Some of us may have been around the old uh, King James version, been around a church for a while. It says bowels of mercy. And it's because this term really came from uh, a term that otherwise could not be described. It's like I moved on my insides with feelings for the other person. It's about that. 
It's about having a heart, the innermost being, the immaterial part of you, your spiritual self and your emotional self, the seat of all your emotions. Be compassionate towards your brothers and sisters who also share life in Christ with you. Be tenderhearted is essentially what he's saying. Then he goes on and he says kindness. You know, kindness I think sometimes we understand kindness in a way that we, you know, we even say, don't mistake my kindness for a weakness. And I think it is related to a term that we'll get to in a moment. But the reality is, is that for kindness, what really is being pictured here, the way that the word is put together, is pictured of wine that has lost its harshness because it's aged over time slowly and it's, it's become smooth you don't have to be a wine drinker to understand uh, the tenets of what it means to be a sommelier to understand there's a difference between the two-buck chuck that's on the shelves at Trader Joe's and that $100 or $200 bottle of 25-year-old wine that's been aged in a cellar. And over time, there's, it's cut through the acidity, and it's become much more smooth to the taste and enjoyable. This is the kind of person that he calls us to be. We're not the kind of people where uh, others walk on eggshells around us because we might lose our cool or blow our, ha- uh, blow our fuse because we're so rough around the edges. No, he calls us to not be sharp with one another, not be harsh with one another, but to be kind. I talked about John Perkins, and earlier this week I was able to listen to him testify of a relationship that he had back during the civil rights movement when he was a very young man, and it was with a preacher by the name of Ray Ortland Sr. Ray Ortland Sr. was a person who had taken interest in John Piper, and he basically just loved him, and he cared for him, and he advocated for him. He was a champion for him. He helped him along the way in the pursuit of justice and reconciliation, and he even gave him platforms and places to be able to Uh, see these things become a reality. And Dr. John Perkins said this. He just said, and he was talking to Ray Ortland Jr. When he saw him, he literally just about fell apart and he said, "I, I just loved your father so much. Let me tell you, around him, I just really felt like I could be comfortable as a Negro. I felt so good around that white man. I mean, he loved me. What he began to describe was this 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 atmosphere that was smooth, it wasn't rough, it wasn't sharp. He described a man after God's heart who was kind. And he he eulogized him. Ray Orland Sr. has passed away since, you know, 12, 13 years. And he basically says that he was the kind of person who was sweet to him. Paul's calling us all to put those things on. So it's almost like we've taken out of the closet the shirt of compassionate hearts. Let's call it a T-shirt, and we've placed it on ourselves. This is Christ's wardrobe. And now he goes and he puts an overshirt over that, and he calls it kindness. And he doesn't stop there speaking about the wardrobe. Then he goes on and he says, uh, humility. He says, I want you to put on humility. In putting on humility, as a command to the Colossians, this was something that was culturally, diametrically opposed to the way that they typically thought about life and who they ought to be. In Greek culture, this idea of humility was a very, very bad term. They basically saw that you're the kind of person is just, I mean, like you're you're a poor excuse for an individual. 
They didn't, they didn't look at being hu- uh, humble as a, uh, a good characteristic. They saw it as a pathetic characteristic. Paul goes and he calls on humility, and, and it calls to mind the fact that he wrote, Paul did in Philippians chapter 2, about humility. And he wrote it about Jesus Christ. And in that he says... that I want you to take on the example of humility. Don't look at your own interests. Look at the interests of others. And then he says, I want you to have the same mind among yourselves. In verse number five, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He says he humbled himself himself. He lowered himself. And he goes on, he says he lowered himself to be like a man and be born in the the form of a man and even died and died a shameful death. Paul calls us to put that on. And so, you know, I mean, that kind of a a garment, if I'm in Christ's closet, it's it's probably some pants that are are much bigger than the pants. They're much longer, much taller than the pants that I uh, own for myself. But again, he calls me to put those on. And then he goes from there and he says meekness. Back in Colossians, he says meekness. Meekness is often confused. I think a lot of us see meekness as being weakness. If you think that uh, you, you don't, then, you know, let's just all maybe take a challenge on how meek we can be in every one of our uh, dealings all day and and every day throughout the week. It's a great challenge. And I think it's because oftentimes we believe that we've got to just be able to bolster ourselves up under whatever the the struggle is or the storm is or whatever context I'm in. And and the reality is, is that, you know what, there's nothing wrong with weakness and embracing it. And God really calls us to that. But when it comes to meekness, the term actually uh, uh, pictures an unassuming strength. When he talks about meekness, he's saying that it flows out of humility and you basically have your strength under control. And you're not the kind of person that goes and you're just out of control. And so, therefore, you would be, right, if you're in your natural man, if you're out of control, then you would be the kind of person that's full of wrath. And you're full of malice and full of anger and slander. No, this is the kind of person who, though he might be as strong as steel, he's not short-fused or quick-tempered. She's not. And so he's telling us to put all these garments on, and then he caps it off with patience. And those are, I mean, those are, those got to be shoes, right? It's just I'm not going anywhere in a hurry. And we know what patience is. If you think about patience, he's calling us to be the kind of people who long suffer with others, whether it be with their infirmities or their struggles, or whether it just be the fact that God has shown us that we're all people in process. And so we're a new humanity, and we're a new community, and we're new together. And so, therefore, I'm not going to be the kind of person who's always in patient with those around me. And so as he's told us to put all these things on, I want you to picture yourself now putting on the best of the best. When you put on the best of the best, what are you doing other than getting ready to go somewhere? You're getting ready to go somewhere nice, right? I still have jewelry and things that I have from the mortgage and real estate business from old times. So if I go to somebody's wedding, like that's when I put on my new watch. 
I have a friend who's giving me some expensive sneakers, and I don't just wear those any and everywhere. I wear those when I feel like I'm going out, I'm stepping out, right? And so the thing is, is he's calling us to do this put on, but it's because he's preparing us for the occasion. And what is the occasion? If you look back at your Bibles, once we get out of uh, verse number 12 and move into verse number 13, I think this is the means and this is the occasion. This is the context and the place for how we are to be dressed. He says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. He even goes on and reminds us that we have on the Lord's clothes and says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so the context really is, I want you to put these things on and get yourself ready to do context, uh, to do life in the context of family and, and closeness, right? We always say, you can't do life by your own, Christian life by, by yourself and, and, and alone. And the truth is, is that this is no different. Clothe yourself with these five things. I want you to clothe yourself with the compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience because you're going to a special place. You're a part of a special event, and that is the church, and that is being with one another. And you're going to have to very quickly learn how to bear with one another in there and to forgive one another. I heard a story once, a funny story of a, a man and a woman who uh, were on a train and they're going down, uh, let's just call it, they're going down to San Diego. Wherever they were headed, they're on the train and the guy quickly falls asleep. And as he quickly falls asleep, he's snoring up a storm and the lady is just like, I mean, she's so bothered by it that she literally calls one of the attendants and says, hey, can you move my seat? I do not want to sit here. Like, can you get me out of this place? And so uh, after a little bit of deliberation, they found an open seat for her and they moved her and she sludged her way by, bumped and woke the guy up and still moved and sat at the other spot. And when the attendant came over to her just to check on her and make sure she's all good, she said, man, thank you so much. I've been married to that man for 30 years and I still cannot stand his snoring. <laughs> we laugh and we mock at that, but you know what it is? That's a picture of what it likes to start moving closer and closer and closer together. The reality is, is that we got to learn how to bear with one another. We will do much more than just uh, uh, snore, right? We will literally have our mess and our wrongs and our sin to spill over in our relationships, and we're going to have to learn that if there's any complaints, we've got to forgive each other. And we've got to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. May we not forget that it's Resurrection Sunday and the forgiveness that we hold so dear was purchased by the blood of Christ and it was stamped as approved because he was raised from the dead. And, and, and if we are the kind of people who have been forgiven for our past and our present and our future sins, we definitely must be those who extend forgiveness to others. And it's a forgiveness that really ought to be priceless, at least what I mean is it's costly. It may cost you, but it's worth it. And there's, there's, no, uh, there's, there's nothing that should be beyond it because the forgiveness that I have been given is so much bigger than whatever I may have to bend out toward anybody else. And so he just says, get yourself ready. Put on these qualities. Put on Christ's clothes so that you will be able to attend the event and be a part of what you've been getting ready for in the proper fashion. 
It's interesting to keep thinking about wardrobe. I remember recently I was going to uh, Houston's, a steakhouse, and going with some friends, and I was there, and and it was interesting that I was there. We were just going to have a quick lunch, and then we were going to go off to somewhere else, and we weren't really planning to go to a nice place. So I wasn't thinking about it, and I was wearing a beanie. I think I was wearing the same beanie I'm currently covering my quarantine haircut with. And we walked in, and the first thing that happened was the attendant says, excuse me, you can't come in here. With that on, you got to take it off. Now, I wanted to leave, but I wasn't buying lunch. (laughs) And I had already driven an hour to get there. And so Brian and Sean looked at me and they're like, you're going to take it off, right? Great. And so I took my hat off and I proceeded in. There's been all kinds of things that in your life, you can think about maybe even the times like if you were like me where I was going to clubs all the time. And when I'm going to clubs, there were times where it was like no baseball cap, no white t-shirt, no jeans, no sneakers, no Timberland boots. I'm like, man, that's everything in my closet. What am I supposed to wear then? (laughs) Well, the reality is, is that then they line out. This is how you dress in order to be here. I hope that it's becoming clear. And so Christ provides and Paul calls our attention to the wardrobe that we need in order to be in, uh, dressed in, in the right and the proper attire for being one and being the body. And he says you need to be ready as the body to bear with one another and to forgive one another. Here's what happened, something interesting right after that. After he says, bearing with one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you almost forgive. Then he says, and above and beyond, and more importantly, it could be said, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you've ever tried to put on someone else's clothes that, don't, that aren't yours, if you put on that, that, that T-shirt and you put on that overshirt and you put on those pants and even put on maybe some socks, the reality is, is that it quickly begins to droop and you realize this is too much for me. I can't do this on my own. And so isn't it just a wonderful provision when you can grab a belt, tuck it all in and tighten it all down? He basically calls love the belt. Even more, I think more specifically, love would be like the suspenders if we're thinking about a a, a wardrobe. It goes over you and it it closes it all up and nothing can go anywhere. It holds the pants up no matter their size. It it holds the shirt down and in no matter its size. It keeps the t-shirt tucked in. And, And what he says is above everything else, on top of all the other things that you are to put on, he tells you, Put on love. And then he describes and he expands and he says, love binds everything together. And not only does it bind everything and everyone together, it does so in perfect harmony. And so it actually causes you to be one. It it reminds you of your oneness. And it brings you into the place where Father, Son, and Spirit have always been one. And they've always been in a love relationship that is absolutely endless. And now you get to enjoy that. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't just leave his wardrobe, these clothes that are too big for me. I'm not as kind as I want to be. I'm always impatient. And I, I, I lack compassion in times of struggle and suffering for others. But no, now he gives me love and I can stop and I can say, I'm beloved. And so I love you, which gives me the ability to bear up and to bear with you and even forgive you if and when I need to. 
Friends, when you think about love, when you think about the gospel, when you think about the resurrection, it is a love story. It is the greatest of love that Jesus Christ would have gone to a cross and died for his people. And anybody who believes in him, places their faith in him for salvation, would be saved forever and ever and ever. That's love, friends. And it's love that God had that plan since before the foundation of the world. And so therefore, even when he died, he raised him from the dead and didn't let him stay there. That is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, what we know as Easter. And here's the deal. When I look at this and I look back at these things, I am reminded that, you know what, above all, love really is that which holds it all together, binds it all together in perfect harmony. There's no way that you cannot tell me that it was not love that caused Jesus Christ to be patient with his disciples. Time and time again, he would tell them, stay here and pray or stay here and I'm going to go and pray. And he'd come back and they would be asleep. Time and time again, he'd be sleeping the boat and they would be freaking out, not knowing what to do. And he would have to say, oh, you of little faith. But Jesus Christ was never impatient with them. It was love, friends, that made him patient. It was love that made him meek and mild with a child. The kind of person who would uh, not be weak with a child, but would keep his strength under control. It was love that made Jesus weak. It was love that called Jesus to leave his throne and to come down to the earth, be made in the form of a man, and and even take on the form of a slave and to die as a, a naked man on a cross and to be brutally beaten and pierced there and then buried. It was love that called Jesus to leave the throne and humble himself that way. It was love that made him be kind to those who otherwise were, were, were always harsh and harsh with others. And it was love that when Jesus looked out across the hills and he saw myriads of people, he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he had compassion on them. Love drove him to that. And so love binds everything together for Jesus. And it was a love plan. It was a love plan that God would so love the world that he gave up his son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have every everlasting life. Love. It was love that called Jesus to lay his life down. In Romans chapter 5 we read, that scarcely would a person die for someone who is their enemy. He goes on and he literally says, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love put Jesus in a manger to be born as a baby in a stinky stable beyond horses and other animals. It was love that called him to grow up and have to be an obedient child to a woman and a man that he created. It was love that would call him to have to endure the law and the sacrificial system that he put in place to reveal himself to the world. It was love that called him to grow up as an adult and to call disciples to himself and stand against a religious system that had rejected who he was and was leading people into all kinds of legalism. It was love that would let him be crucified and judged or judged and crucified by that 
sorry system, by wrong and unjust laws. It was love that caused him to not say anything, but to go to the death like a sheep that was going to slaughter with his mouth closed. It was love that caused him to stay on the cross, to suffer the wrath of God. It was love that caused him to be there and have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was alone for the first time. He was taking on the sins of the world. It was love that kept him there. And it was love. And Jesus says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. It was love that caused him to voluntarily, voluntarily give up the ghost. And to die. And friends, if you haven't understood it by now, it was love that God raised him from the dead. John Perkins tells how he was beaten in Mississippi. He was in a jail being repeatedly kicked and stomped on as he laid in the fetal position for protection. He was being beaten by drunken officers. One by one, they would come and just beat him to a bloody pulp. And he's writhing on the ground in a pool of his own blood, being punched and kicked and stomped and hit with all kinds of instruments. And there was even a a time where he says a bigger man, that's all he knew, was a bigger man came in and beat him so bad that he was unconscious. And he only woke up because another man came and jammed a fork down his throat and was trying to kill him. This is the kind of experience that this man had during the civil rights movement. And he described that it was barbaric torture. And he said it was excusable in his mind as a reason to hate. But then something happened to him. Let me read his story to you in his own words. He said, the spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind that night. The image of the cross. Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. He said, this Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he had preached Yet he was arrested and he was falsely accused, just like me. He went through an unjust trial, just like me. He was facing a lynch mob and he got beaten, just like me. But even more than that, he was nailed to a rough wooden plank and killed, killed like a common criminal. It was a crucial moment for me that it seemed that Jesus had even been rejected by the Father himself and deserted. Jesus had felt my pain. The suffering was so great that he cried out in agony and he was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, who had beaten him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed, God, forgive them. Father, please forgive these people for they do not know what they're doing. His enemies hated, but he forgave. I couldn't get away from that. He says it's a profound and a mysterious truth that Jesus' concept of love is so overpowering to hate. He says, I may not see it in my lifetime, but now I even know that it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. Jesus overcame 
all of my hate. And he says in that instant, he washed away hatred and replaced it with love for every man, even my enemy. Friends, if you're here online watching and you're considering these things with us in Galatians chapter or Colossians chapter 3 and, and you have found yourself in a spot where you recognize that this is true for you as a person who has a new life in Christ. I have a simple message for you. Put on love which binds everything else together in perfect harmony. Self-sacrificing, not about me, and uh, intentionally gracious and merciful attitudes and actions that seek the good of other people. Put that on and put that over Compassionate heart, a, a, a tender heartedness from the inside, not just behavior modification on the outside. Put it over meekness and humility and patience. Put on love. If you're watching and you're with us and this is something that has been new to you, I had one message for you and I hope you've heard it already. The simple message is God loves you. God loves you and he gave his life up for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All you must do is believe by faith that he has taken away everything, everything that is not like him in his beloved son. And now he calls you beloved and causes you to turn around from the way that you have lived. He causes you to repent, to do a 180, to turn back and walk the other direction that you might journey towards him with a new attitude. If you do that, maybe you've done that even here now and you've done that recently or you'll do that here in a moment. I just want you to know that there is a promise of eternal life. That your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame and even all of your fear and all of your uncertainties... Those things will come off of your back like an 800-pound gorilla. You walk light. And be able to say that I was yet a sinner, but Christ died for my sins. And now he calls me chosen, holy, and beloved. If that's you today, let me pray for you. Let me pray with you. I pray that you would just join with me from wherever you are and that this would be a moment where you see that you have been saved by God's grace and given eternal life through the Son and the cross. Father, I thank you that the gospel never changes and it really has gone around the entire world and it's done so over many periods and through many, many, many places. And here we find ourselves on Easter 2020, most of us sheltered at home and watching and listening to sermon and participating with church. Maybe we were going to go to church or we thought that we'd put on our Easter best and we'd go and be with the people of God. But you've called us now to do that in this place. What, a, what an interesting time to also be thinking about the fact that you really don't call us to put on anything materially in order to come to you. 
Instead, you've provided for us to be able to put on Christ's righteousness. God, I pray that believers who, uh, who are listening and who know this, that our Arise family and others would be encouraged by this and that you build us up for your service and not just for your, ser- for your service individually, for we know that this is something that you are uh, stirring up for us as a community together that we might endure with one another. And God, I pray for that person or the person's who's listening and for the first time they're wrestling with these things and they first understood that you love them. God, I pray and I ask you that you would give them grace today and confidence and assurance in the resurrection that by faith and through grace, salvation has been made available, purchased, signed, sealed, and delivered because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. God, be with them in that moment where they pray, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray, God, that you would even give them, uh, even right now, confidence of your presence with them. And that, Lord, you would change their life because of the experience of a new love. And even bring them into community where they can find that new identity, uh, that place for a new humanity and, and, and so on. And so, God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would keep using it, Lord, to change us. You've changed so many of our lives and you're still transforming people. We're grateful for that in Christ's name. Amen.